No Directions Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plaguestone Pathfinder 2e actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Directions own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at RollForCombat.com. No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at NoDirectionPodcast.com. We good? Okay. Now good. All right. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Leo. Uh, welcome to uh, Ask the Paizo GM. So if you're here for that, you're in the right place. Um, I'm joined today by Amanda and Michael. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, so just kind of let you start. Hello, everybody. I'm Amanda Hammond. I am the managing developer for Starfinder. And I've been at Paizo for about five years, uh, starting out being a developer on Pathfinder, working on every product that we released except for the novels um, at that point in time, and then moving on to the Starfinder design team uh, and uh, now doing the managing development for that game. I am Michael Sayre, and I'm a member of the Organized Play team. I uh, work as a developer there, creating the scenarios and helping plan the uh, program uh, out into each new season. And I've been with Paizo for almost two years now. Awesome. And as I said, I'm Leo Glass. Uh, I'm an editor at Paizo. I'm also a freelance writer, um, and I work on all sorts of different things, from product lines uh, like Starfinder um, to Pathfinder. Um, and I've been GMing, I think, since I was 18. I started with uh, um, Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition and had, I think have GMed something like 35 systems along the way. So it's been great and a lot of fun. So hopefully we can pass on uh, all of our knowledge to you. We wanted to uh, kind of just open it up in kind of a fun way uh, and tell you stories, right? Because storytelling is what GMing is all about. And then, honestly, the most of the... the uh, rest of the session is, is just going to be you asking us questions um, and us hopefully giving you good answers. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we'll, see no how, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but please feel free uh, to ask and all that. But um, kind of just thought we'd start off with a, a favorite or interesting GM story that each of us uh, had. So um, do y'all do y'all have, have any recent or even not so recent uh, stories of being a GM? So probably one of my favorite GM stories is um, about how NPCs who you come up with for really random reasons because you need a throwaway because a player asks, hey, who's the blacksmith in town? I want to go visit them or, or whatever, right? You know, there's always this NPC who you need to come up with on the spot and they're always the character you've put the least thought and effort into, which guarantees that the players will want them to become central to all of the stories going forward. I remember running a game where a friend of mine, his girlfriend had never played Dungeons and Dragons before and that was the system we were playing in. And we convinced her to come play with us. We're like, no, it's fun. It's going to be great. Trust us. It'll be really great. Um, and then she died during her very first session to a critical hit from a skeleton. And I felt really bad about this because there was no way the character was going to come back. But she had just spent, you know, two hours building a character and we had told her how fun this was going to be. <laughs> so 
I threw out like this random rat folk merchant riding a much larger rat who did not take money but only <laughs> traded for random items. He was like, oh yeah, I've got this rod of resurrection with one charge left and I want your shoes. And they were like, our, our shoes? Yeah, your shoes. I want your shoes and in return I'll give you this. And they were like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. So they make the trade and they're like, we need your name because you're the coolest person we've ever met and we want to be able to talk to you again. So I'm like, uh, yeah, Watler, the name's Watler. Yeah, travel all over the place. This character recurred across two games and four years of playing. And ultimately, I think one of the party members ended up like, Marrying Watler for his money, but not in too shady a way. <laughs> so, yeah, I just um, I think that's probably one of the one of the things that really makes a story special as a GM is when you are reactive to your players and you see what they are interested in, and and then you go with that, you feed into that, and you find the story that they really want to tell. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really that's really kind of where I'm coming from as a GM as well. Um, I've been jamming for over a decade and have gone uh, through the gamut of I must try to prepare everything that the players might possibly need. And doing I was doing a lot of homebrewing back then, so you know I need to like come up with this story and come up with all of these stat blocks and like figure out exactly what's going to happen from moment to moment to moment to moment. And then very quickly over the first couple of sessions, came to realize that I just wasted hours of my own time because the players. <laughs> decided to do something entirely different than what I thought they would do um, and that was very much a crash course in learning how to improvise and uh, how to uh, come up on the fly with new ideas and basically not let on that they had kind of ruined my plans um, <laughs> and giving them a good time right jamming is very yeah. much about uh, working with your players to create a shared story and to have a good time for everybody and so yeah. uh, a really good way to, to do that is to be able to be reactive and think on your feet and have a sense of the world of the story that it's taking place in and what other things might happen yeah. that you that you don't anticipate and some of my favorite stories come from things that the players did that I would have never in a million years guessed that they did that they would do yeah. uh, and being able to just riff off of that and come up with things that I know I wouldn't have been able to put in the adventure uh, otherwise and it was based on something that an, a, a PC said or did or something they asked about um, so in recent years I've been doing a lot of jamming on stream and that comes with its own sets of challenges because you only have a certain time slot to get through an entire adventure and there's really no option to just stop before the end of the adventure you have to you have to have the entire arc you have to create the story um, and uh, in a couple of cases I've run sort of shorter modules that have to be they have to be two sessions so I have to kind of judge where I think things will end at the end of the first session, and then I have to get that second session to the final encounter so that there is a conclusion. Because there's an audience watching, and they need to be able to have a coherent story to follow along to. Um, I recently, and, and by recently I mean last year, uh, <laughs> GM'd uh, some playtest stuff uh, for the Pathfinder playtest before second edition came out, which by the way, all of our second edition stuff is down in the booth. Uh, all show, or at least as long as it lasts. So, minor plug there. Um, Shuttle plug. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't technically work that much on second edition. Um, wrote some other stuff for it, but 
So um, I wrote one of the playtest adventures called Affair at Somberfell Hall, which is for uh, seventh level characters and uh, was very much a horror themed adventure in which the party goes to the titular manor and ends up being besieged by undead. Um, and it turns out that, you know, spoilers for those of you who haven't played the adventures, I won't be you know too specific, but uh, there's, a, there's a professor whose uh, link that uh, is unknowingly to this very evil creature has sort of drawn these undead to this house and they're assaulting them kind of waves and it's got um you know uh, just a very kind of tarantino-esque vibe uh, to that uh, whole situation so i'm jamming a ferris somberfell hall on stream and i've got two sessions uh, to get through uh, basically the party getting to the manor and getting through i think there's like four waves i ended up having to cut one wave out uh, of the of the adventure because there just wasn't time but the the beginning of the adventure starts out in this town and it's meant to only be at least on the stream uh, a few minutes maybe 10 15 minutes of the characters meeting each other uh, and being approached um, by a contact with an organization that they are working with to ask them to go to this manor to talk to this professor who is this expert uh, on the Dominion of the black which is uh, one of the major uh, themes um, of of the entire arc uh, of uh, doomsday dawn which is the whole adventure that this is. And so uh, they, the characters ended up like going to the tavern and they got uh, met by their contact and they were kind of talking about, uh, you know, should we go? How are we going to find out where this manor is? And, you know, of course they had gotten all of this information, but they're role-playing their characters. Mm -hmm. We had uh, Cosmo, uh, who's one of our, our sales reps, who was <laughs> playing a, a goblin character. We had Chris Caldwell, who used to be uh, one of our... Uh, one of our accountants who was playing a uh, he was playing like a cleric type um, and so they were all we had Whitney Chatterjee who is in our uh, IT department who was playing like a very sort of like uh, stern type of um, a very stern type of character who was very serious and wanted to know all of the information because it was dangerous and she didn't think that everything was right about this and so they're sort of arguing back and forth and figuring out you know what they want to do and it's all very interesting and entertaining on camera but I'm sitting there looking and it's been like 30 minutes into this session and we only got two hours into the first session and they haven't even got to the hall yet they haven't even got to the adventure <laughs> the entire adventure is in the hall how can we have an affair at Somerville Hall if we're not at if the we're hall? not a, it's, it's not called a fair at the tavern before you get to Somerville Hall. It's called Affair at Somerville Hall. And so, you know, I was describing the scene and dropping hints, trying to get them to go to the hall, and they weren't. They just weren't doing it. And so I had uh, I had described that the tavern was largely empty and that there were a couple of drifters um, that were hanging out uh, in the corner. And uh, I eventually had one of them go up to the party uh, and kind of like stagger drunkenly up there and be like, "Hey, Somerville Hall. Why would you want to go there? I heard that that's a dump." And got them like try to push them toward the hall. And they immediately lash onto this character. And this is a character I have 100% made up. This character is not in the module. They're, and they ask him his name. And I'm like, uh, I don't know, Bartle the Entertainer. And just like <laughs> off the top of my head, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Came up with this persona of this sort of drunken guy who thinks that he is like the best entertainer and that everybody is there to see him. And really, he's just the town drunk. And they latched onto Bartle and they wanted to know all all about his training and what his performances were like and where he was from uh, and he's like he's just bantering with them back and forth and they end up going to Somerville Hall because Bartle was telling them all about you know how weird it was out there and he could show them exactly where it was and maybe there's some good stuff out there it's abandoned usually I don't know if the professor is there or not and all of this 
and he, they end up taking him with them to Somberville Hall. <laughs> and, like, he becomes their mascot, and he has come up with a song that he's playing that's heralding the party uh, about, oh my gosh, uh, uh, everything like that. And so I had to just make that character up because I wanted sure. the party to have an impetus to go do the adventure. I mean, a lot of that was because of the stream, but that, sure. I think, is something that's applicable yeah. uh, to other games as well, right? When you as the GM have... An adventure you're trying to run, you need a catalyst for your party to go there. And so making up an NPC is is a good way to do that. But there's also other possible ways that we can talk about it if you guys want. Anyway, that was funny because people just decided that Bartle was the hero of this adventure. And it's all on social <laughs> media and everybody is like, bring back Bartle. So, I don't know, Bartle might show up in an adventure at some point just <laughs> because the party decided that he was their favorite. And he doesn't exist in the adventure. <laughs> If, uh, if anybody wants a story from me, I'll throw one out maybe later. We can close around that way. But I really want to make this about y'all and what your questions are and, and some of those challenges. And you've heard a little bit about improvisation uh, and being a GM, just kind of in those stories. But does anyone have any questions? If so, come up and we'll kick it off. Talk about our GMing philosophy, if you guys want. Sure. I've already touched on that. So actually, I'll I'll take that one because I was it sort of parallels what I was going to say for my story. But I'd like to have a sort of what I would call a uh, a pocket adventure, but or pocket ideas, sort of always sitting around. That if you know players sort of want to go off on their own or go off script for a longer AP or something, I'm ready for it. And this just happened in my Starfinder game where I was looking at, I was like, you know, I really want to run a cybernetic golem. And I really haven't had a whole lot of NPC technomancers in Starfinder as enemies. So I kind of statted some up and they were just sitting there. I didn't know how I would use them. And sure enough, uh, they were they were headed from Castrovel to, to Akaton. Now, like, you know what? It'd be really awesome if we just bought some some medical goods and sold them low, or bought them low uh, in, in one planet to sell high on another. Does Akaton need that? I had to make some rolls. They're like, yeah, they need some medicine. There's lots of mining. There's tough stuff there. There's some diseases. Sure. And I was like, wait a minute. So I'm going to make this medicine run way harder than they expect now. And that's all they wanted was to just take some uh, medical supplies. So I was like, yeah, you can totally go pick those up. You're going to go pick those up. Uh, uh, in this area, you're going to hang out at this little cafe, uh, and this technomancer was basically running. I was like, all right, I'll just weave this all together, these couple seeds. Um, and I kind of created the story that the, the technomancer was a small crime lord in the area, uh, in this little area, and she um, was sort of employing her two sons to do her dirty work uh, uh, for her. Um, and they were basically kind of just using this diner as a front um, to uh, you know, kind of shovel uh, all these medical supplies off-world into all these smugglers. So the PCs sit down and think they're just here to pick up, and one of them's a criminal, uh, and kind of using their interactions. And I also, so in that, that pocket that I kind of talked to you about, I also think about my daily life a lot of times because that makes things more relatable. Um, and I had recently moved in with my partner and adjusted to living with a dog for the first time. And I was like, you know, interactions with pets are sort of interesting. And so I just made a little quick tale that the two brothers who are running this whole front uh, uh, for the Technomancer are also sort of always arguing over the one of them taking strange pets into this place. And so sure enough, my best player sits down and is like, I'm really, really hungry. And the one more mischievous brother was, really? You're hungry? I can make you a special. He's like, yeah, I'd, I'd love a special. 
And so I walked him in the back. This is kind of gross, a little bit of a trigger warning for anybody. It's like he comes out with this big red syrupy concoction and pours it into a glass. And you notice that there's some chunks in it, whatever, as well. Slides it over to the vest and they immediately drink it. Well, about 30 seconds later, the other brother comes out screaming, where's my pet? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that just led into shenanigans. So you, you, yeah, but so you can just kind of always have, and that led to some, some conflict once you realize that that ended up introducing the cyber golem later and the technomancer. And so anyway, um, long story short, you can just kind of, you know, flip through uh, an alien archive or a bestiary, look for um, some things that inspire you and just weave them into stories. That's a lot of times how I, I run things when I'm not running a scripted adventure. And those are some of the best adventures I've, I've had or, or ran. Um, so that's sort of my GM philosophy too, is take it seriously, prepare, but also be ready, you know, for, to just have a little fun in a, in a less scripted way yeah. sometimes too. So to sum that up, Leo's philosophy is if you're not sure the party is engaged, Put a pet in a blender. <laughs> Feed it to another PC. You oh, heard it here God. first. <laughs> oh, I would say I'm afraid to be in your games, but I am in one of your games, so I know that that's true. Oh, gosh. I think uh, my philosophy is, is very similar to that, and it's a lot about uh, improvising and, I guess, putting pets into blenders, drinking them, maybe? I mean, as an extrapolation of that sure. philosophy. Yeah, sure. Um, but I would say that the advice, or, or maybe just the philosophy that I have, is is to be familiar with the rules, certainly. Uh, yeah. Know how the system works, but don't feel constrained uh, or confined by what the rules allow you to do. Um, so if you're running organized play, of course, you know you do need to, to adhere very strictly to the way the rules work, but if you're, if you're running a home game, you should uh, realize and allow yourself to have the flexibility to, uh, to tweak the rules and sort of follow the, the spirit and the sense of them to allow the players to do what it is that they want. If you have a player who, you know, uh, is in a social kind of situation, is trying to impress an NPC, and all of a sudden wants to start an arm wrestling match to show how strong he is, that actually has happened to me before, and, and I'll talk maybe a little bit about how that resolved, but in Instead of saying, well, there's no arm wrestling subsystem mechanics, you can't do that, and not letting that PC do that, the answer to that question uh, really should be, of course you can do that, and just figuring out how you're going to resolve that with the rules. And, you know, there's really, the, and of course the secret is the PCs, as long as they're having fun and it makes sense Mm -hmm. um, and it's not contradicting itself, there's really no wrong way to do that. You can do that through skill checks, you can do that through strength checks, you can do that through any series of of die rolls or mechanics that you think is appropriate within the system that you're playing, whether it's Pathfinder or Starfinder, and as long as, you know, there's some sort of narrative uh, arc and conclusion to what's going on, then you've achieved your goal as the Game Master, which is you are creating and maintaining the verisimilitude that uh, there's rules underlying all of the story that you're telling so that that's advice that i have that as much as you can let the rules work for you as opposed to the other way around and feeling confined by not being allowed to do things maybe that they don't explicitly say that you can do yeah you want to we can take a question and then we can go back to gm philosophy if you want to field that there's always a situation in the game where someone gets a phone call or someone has a conversation the players just get distracted as gms what tricks do you have to you know get people back in focus that's a good question. 
Do you want to take that? Um, yeah. So uh, one of the things that I instituted with uh, a group I had who was very easily distracted. They were people who all wanted to be there together playing, but keeping focus was uh, not something they were good at. So I just started adding certain elements to the game to increase the um, the intensity and the immediacy of what was going on. Yeah. I pulled uh, like a um, like a little hourglass timer out of some board game. I don't know. It was like a thirty second timer and. Part of, well, part of completing your turn would be flipping the hourglass over for the next person. And you didn't have to have your turn done by the time the sand was out, but you had to be executing whatever it was you were going to do or in the process of doing it. And what happened was nobody wanted to be the person who didn't notice that the timer was sitting in front of them counting down because they were looking at their phone or whatever. So people zeroed in. And then it also just helped with the general flow of things. We went from getting like one combat encounter a night done to getting three or four combat yeah. encounters into an evening and everything. Um, and so just introducing some uh, some impetus and some immediacy really went a long way for me. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good a really good tool to use. So in general, I think it's important to keep in mind that as the game master, you are really the arbiter of your space. And by that, uh, that means both physically in that, you know, maybe you're playing at your house, you're playing at your friend's house or, or um, at a store. And so, you know, getting everything kind of set up, having seating and food and all of that stuff, like as the game master, that's something um, that you're going to want to put together. But that you also have the agency to say, I don't want people using tablets at the table, if that's the case. Um, you know, sometimes people use PDFs, so that's not necessarily going to work for everybody. Um, but really just deciding what's best for your game and having all of your players agree to um, at the very beginning you know we're not going to look at our phones unless it's an emergency or you know we'll take breaks yeah. for five minutes where we can step away and respond to our text messages or something like that and really just um, having a good sense of what does work and what doesn't work for your for your group um, yeah. glancing down at phones I know is a thing that happens all the time it, it takes people out of the game and you know, really, I think as a player, you should you should probably not do things that will be disruptive. But as the game master, it's really sort of you're the headmaster, and you know you can be empowered to be like, you know, can you please focus on the game and just have it be a very quick uh, request and then move on. Do you have any online GMs like people who who run games like using Roll Twenty mm. or the various things out there? So my my Starfinder game is all online right now like I, I play with my friends at home and then my partner plays too so I've got one player in the room with me and I have I have uh, three other players back in Nebraska online doing this whole thing um, and I've struggled sometimes because you won't even get the the visual recognition you'd get with a phone call or whatever and the other person will just not be there it's like yeah. where did they what happened where's yeah. Preston Preston are we playing? Um, and But life happens, right? And so there's a little bit of flexibility and understanding there. And we've talked about it. We've kind of set good expectations. Mm -hmm. And to Amanda's point, communication is key. Yeah. You know, just being able to, to talk through, hey, if life happens, can we just, we'll all just go back to bantering and catching up with each other and then we'll resume the game. Or when things have gotten a little bit more intense and they really want to focus, I, I just think about how I can describe things or put something in the room that they can't resist interacting with and that they will really dig in on. Or, 
I think to Mike's point, put them in a situation. You're like once we were starting and, and we hadn't talked to each other in a while. We had taken a break. We hadn't had several sessions in three or four weeks. So the the banter beforehand was was really intense, and they were they were getting they're having trouble getting started. And I kind of knew that uh, as we were going into it. And I was like, I was like, all right, Pogo, who's who's my Yosoki uh, sort of operative criminal in the group. I was like. Pogo, you can hear the subtle whine and power up of a laser pistol, and you feel cold metal pressed into your forehead. What do you do? And I, everyone else stopped really fast. Like, wait a minute, hold on. We were just sitting around last time we stopped the session. How is there a gun pointed at our our operative's head? But it just sets the scene. We went right into it. We went on an adventure from there. Um, but it, but sometimes just grabbing people's attention yeah. with something that's interesting or, or engaging yeah. is a good way. But I. I think for the most part, communication is going to be and and if you have somebody who um, just can't can't sort of put those things down or, or or stop, you know, maybe just talk to them about it individually and and see where that goes. But. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that not all not all distractions are necessarily external. Of sure. course, you've got you know the the phones and the devices that could be intrusive, or you've got maybe you've got pets kind of running around or kids or, sure. or whatever it is sure. and then that is very important to have communication about ways that you might want to mitigate or handle that you know yeah. as is reasonable and everybody agrees but there can also be some sort of internal distractions as well maybe the pacing of the game is starting to slow down a little sure. bit and people are disengaging from what's happening at the table um, you know maybe there's a role play element where one character uh, is really going back and forth with the GM and the other players are kind of starting to zone out a little bit and I think being cognizant of where everybody's headspace is as much as you possibly can as the game master uh, is something that's very helpful to keep everybody engaged in the game. And like Leo said, um, that's a tactic that I use as well all the time, is something happening in game that's very surprising. And I run a lot of horror games and so... <laughs> you? Uh, I do. You? Yeah, I do. Wow. And so there's, al there's always kind of a lot of tension and suspense in those types of games um, but it's very difficult to continue that throughout the course of a longer session or an overall campaign. That's why a lot of horror campaigns don't last that long because it once sort of the uh, the falling action kind of happens or the horror is revealed or you show the monster on the screen, then there's only so much time that you have until uh, you have to wrap the story up because it's just ended. And so, you know, noticing when uh, players are starting to become disengaged, you might, uh, you know, they might be kind of creeping through uh, like a house or something, an abandoned facility, and they're not finding a lot of stuff or maybe they're failing a bunch of knowledge checks or something like that. Um, you know, all of a sudden you can just like, if they're looking like that they're not paying attention, you can just kind of bang on the table <laughs> and not explain it, right? And so they'll just kind of like, what is that? Like, they think you as the GM, what are you doing? And they just go, you hear that coming from that corridor behind you. It has a metallic ring to it. And just when you think that it must be some sort of maintenance device or, you know, just the, the building settling, you'll hear, What are they going to do? Do you even know what's happening as a GM? No, you probably don't, but they're going to go check that out, and now all of a sudden they are back in that game. That's that mix of theatrics, and and I mean, not, it doesn't mean, I mean I've had great GMs that don't use theatrics uh, as storytelling devices, you know, too, and, and I, Amanda and I, I know, do a lot of voices when we, <laughs> when we do things. I don't know, do you... How, how I occasionally do voices. I almost lost my voice at PaizoCon because I was running an adventure where I had like a high-pitched squeaky goblin character and then like a deep booming bear character and I had to keep switching oh. between them yeah, and yeah. it annihilated my vocal yeah, yeah, cords. Yeah, yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's 
just I think just think about the tools in your tool belt and what you feel comfortable with. If you're somebody who I mean, I was in drama, you know, in, in mm-hmm. high school and stuff, and so I feel more comfortable mm-hmm. being a dramatic GM. If you don't, that's completely cool. But think about, you know, what your engagement techniques are and then okay, how can I integrate them into my game? Yeah, it can, it can be anything. Um, it doesn't have to be, like the, uh, Leo said, any kind of theatrics. It can be simply, you know, very florid descriptions of what's happening. Sure. Um, my favorite types of combat, both to run into play in, are when the GM doesn't just go, okay, you hit, you do five points of damage. Okay, he misses you. He isn't going to do any damage to you. What are you going to do? Like, that gets very staid and boring to me. And so, you know, while the roles are still happening and, you know, there's still numbers going on and you still kind of have to say numbers out loud, I will describe what exactly is happening. So a hit isn't just a hit, but it's a sword that's biting into, uh, you know, the the side of your neck. Um, You know, a a miss isn't a miss. It's uh, planking off of the side of your armor and denting it. And all of a sudden, you're worried about what happens if you get hit again. Um, The monster isn't, uh, you know, isn't just like isn't just a, a dragon but it's a, a um, reptilian creature that has one drooping wing and, it, and it's got you know, like a lame yeah, leg right so, yeah. and it's drooling a little bit out of the side yeah. of its mouth you think it might be a dragon but you're not exactly sure um, so you know just giving lots of descriptions and keeping people engaged in the game I think is a very fun thing yeah I didn't intentionally start doing it as like a GMing thing. It was just something I did automatically because I think maybe I'd seen somebody else do it. I've never just said, you get hit, 16 damage, move on. It's always been yeah. like the dagger bites through a chink in your armor yeah. and now you've yeah. got like a bleeding wound in your armpit or or, or whatever, right? Like yeah. it's always something. And then after I got myself into trouble many, many years ago, where like I forgot that I had already like sliced someone's face, so slicing them again in the same part of their face wasn't necessarily going to be that impactful. I just started like making quick notes next to the stat blocks for the monster or whatever if I'm using them, where it would be like cut in face, stabbed in arm, yeah. stabbed in leg. Maybe I'll do something with these notes, or maybe I just won't say you stabbed them in the leg again. <laughs> Man, it's a good thing people don't read your GM notes out of context. <laughs> like, as he's talking, I'm like, holy shit, he sounds like a mass murderer. All right, um. I live in fear of the TSA going through my gaming. Notes. I'm just being like, what are you playing? Do not let this woman on the plane. She is planning something heinous. Hey, looks like we have a we question. We have a question. Yeah, we have a question from uh, Twitch from user Rough Galaxy. Cool. When players go to a general shop in the universe, uh, how do you generate inventory? Do you go with printed prices? Do you make them up as you go? Because uh, they're having some trouble with figuring out with the so many items that exist in Starfinder, Starfinder how to figure that out. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good question. And um, in some cases, adventures, if you're running a pre-written adventure, it will perhaps say the types of things that you can buy. I know uh, Starfinder Society can and also do that mm-hmm. and tell you, you know, items of a certain level and below is a, a common thing that we'll do. Or mm-hmm. if there's a specific stuff that's available because it's preparing you for an encounter later that the players don't know about, that will also be called out. Um, but if you're homebrewing things, uh, you can do uh, really kind of whatever you want that is appropriate and use your judgment for what you think the player should and shouldn't have. Starfinder is very easy because our items all have levels. Um, and so, uh, in general, you know, character level plus two is probably the best thing that you want your characters to get. So, if it's a settlement that's uh, on a backwater planet uh, without a lot of resources or access, there may only be, you know, character level minus two or three or whatever your character's levels are. Those types of items might be there. But if you're in a very big metropolis, if you're on Absalom Station, yeah. uh, if you have a, a smuggling sort of connection or something like that, then maybe you do allow different types 
types of items to be available as well. Um, sticking to the core rulebook is a good thing if you don't have armory, first of all, and you also don't want to overload yourself with all the options. That can be good because a lot of the, the core items that are um, sort of iconic and fill very major uh, use niches are going to be in there. But if you want cool, interesting stuff, there's all sorts of additional content in the armory as well. And I and that might come from so I kind of have been playing with a homebrew sort of haggling system for Starfinder mm. because my PCs always want to to barter and that's not you know that's not really a focus of of Starfinder you know with everything being a ten percent uh, sort of value and so okay how can I make things seem a little bit more personal for yeah. them when they're mm -hmm. buying and so I just came up with a system where I assign traits to items and the the traits will sort of help them know where certain items can be found so like I might label something scientific or merchant or criminal now they don't know those traits they're not ever going to see it but they roll up in a seedier area and they're only getting access to the criminal items yeah. they roll up in like a science lab or whatever and and they're trying to say hey what can we steal or you know ask uh, nicely uh, these scientists to give us you know sort of thing um, then they might have access to the scientific or technological sort of stuff and so I just like those traits because it just helps me very quickly think and I, I normally just go through bef before I prep and write down a couple that are within that three level item level, you yeah, know. Yeah. And and so there's a couple items. I'm like, sweet. Now I've got my items done that that, that you know they they might have access to, um, and it simplifies things and yeah. makes things faster to run. So. Yeah, having a good fundamental sense of what uh, type of shop this is and where it is and yeah. sort of what the background of the place is will help you answer those questions about what types of items should uh, there be. A, a big thing in the setting are specialty shops. So you might have cybernetic augmentations, and that's right. all that that shop has. Um, necrographs is a thing. There's a necrograph shop in uh, Dead Sense Number 3 um, <laughs> that you can buy a bunch of stuff from. So uh, really having it, it feel like it's part of the setting and, and not just like a an S-mart type of situation where the characters can show up and magically everything in the books are there. Like, I don't think that that's a good approach because I, I think that that's sort of cheesy. So, yeah, having a good sense of that is key. I'll, um, this is one of those things where, like, a session zero is really nice. That's something I try to do before every game when I, uh, when I sit down with my players is, you know, session zero a lot of times is them making characters and figuring out how they want to interact with each other, but it's also my opportunity to say like, um, okay, what kind of things interest your character? What is their background? What is their general motivation? What kind of weapons do you think you would use? What kind of weapons do you think you won't use? Armors, etc. And I'll just make quick notes for each character like that. And then as I'm running the adventure, I'll usually refer back to those notes, uh, or if I'm on top of things, before I'm running the adventure, when I'm getting ready to run the adventure, I'll make some quick stuff, find some level-appropriate goodies for them, seed them through, and make sure that they feel like they're finding stuff that's really exciting for them and that they want. And in a way, it's kind of like giving them a shopping list, but not one that feels like a shopping list. Yeah. Yeah, so how do you best uh, immerse yourself for a type of campaign that you're not normally used to running? Like... Uh... Amanda said she ran horror a lot, but like if you were just going to try to run a comedy game instead, mm. like yeah. how would you work to prepare yourself for something like that? Oh, good question. I don't. I don't want to talk over people. So. Yeah. <laughs> Watch media that is related yeah. to the genre that you are going to uh, run. So, like if you're going to run something that is very comedic in nature, 
watch different types of comedy and you know like everything like go black and white laurel and hardy go to like modern comedians and stuff like that um there is a caveat in this that not all comedy is appropriate to all people in venues <laughs> and that is true of many different genres sure. so you kind of want to work with that a little bit not everybody and, likes uh, pets and blenders yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, yeah not everybody puts pets in blenders not leo. everybody thinks that's hilarious leo <laughs> well <all right. laughs> Check, please. Um, but it's a really good way to learn the tone and see some of the tricks that you're probably going to want to use in practice. Um, like for, uh, for example, the movie the, um, the Evil Dead taught me about how much scarier it is when you have no idea what the evil thing looks like, when it's just lurking in the background. Oh, sure. And even the actual monsters are not the real scary thing. They're just yeah. a manifestation of the scary thing and uh when i saw that and i realized that it just gave me this whole new set of tools to use to tell scary stories and run scary games yeah i uh i've been so i've been running some blades in the dark uh, uh with some some office folks and so i i just there's some great recommendations in in that product that like hey watch peaky blinders so i just started watching criminal based stuff and uh I'm, they're they're playing a cult so i was like sweet like i'm just gonna start reading some more lovecraft too and and kind of familiarize myself with that and so you know just don't be afraid yeah watch media but also you know read books make a so something i use and i've been using a lot more for writing recently so creating adventures and and uh the freelance i work on but create a mood board you know that can be yeah. really useful too like find pictures that sort of summon the essence of how you want your game session to play heck you could even show it to your players and and just sort of set the scene with that or or just look at it before you gm um it's funny how images especially when you look at them can sort of change the the mental map that's going on as, as of the things you think and say so um i would say you know just kind of to michael's point immerse yourself as, as much as you can plus yeah. if you're trying to run a horror game and you show up with a picture of a blender and a kitten like <laughs> the players are going to be focused and they're going to be scared so and you know what the beauty of jamming is that you can have that up there and the entire time they're gonna be like where's the cat in the blender where's the cat in the blender where's the cat in the blender and there's never a cat in the blender the entire time you just set them off balance um, I think if possible, if you can, you know what type of game you want to run. If you can drill down onto maybe like a subgenre, or if you want, yeah. if you want a certain feel, if you want to go for a specific feel, to watch media about that sort of thing, get recommendations from friends or things that you've seen in the past. You know, like if you want to run a heist game, uh, watch a bunch of Leverage, for example. That's yeah. a really sure. good show that also has role playing game um, that is all about uh, the roles of specific characters doing specific things all to work together for a heist. Or watch, you know, the Ocean's. 11 series uh, or just any sort of sets of that um, comedy has lots and lots mm -hmm. of different subgenres. if you want a specific kind of, of comedy um, yeah. if you want something that's slapstick or if you want something you know that's uh, more dry and sarcastic there's media out there for that and and I think it goes both ways as well if you you know are a GM and you're running a, a game that's you know like an episode of the week type of thing um, all the time the I've been in games and ran games that's like you know what I just want to run a game that is basically this movie or this TV show or, or this, you know, manga or whatever. Sure. Another question? Yeah. Yep, we have another question from chat from Jason WFD. Uh, do you have any techniques or methods used to create new ideas for adventures? Kind of piggybacking off the last couple statements. Oh, interesting. 
New ideas. Uh, I I really do pluck from my own personal life a lot because I feel like I can I can just relate to the content a little bit, right? So you know you, you think about the challenges you might face that you are seem mundane, but that you can make fantasy or or science fiction. It's like oh. Uh, I made a, 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 poor, a poor choice to not be completely transparent with a friend, and now we're in conflict. So maybe that's what's going on uh, in the Xena Wardens when the NPCs show up. Is you know, and it's it's simple, but you can draw from that. And so the answers then are, oh, I made them mad, so there's an alter altercation going on. And again, now I'm building that suspense again, right? And so. I, and and then I ask my I can say in my head okay that was a, a blow up fight that we had so I'll just and I my material is just writing itself as I'm going and then the conflict can go from there but I I think for me I always start with a conflict because there's got to be a conflict to drive the story in some way so it's you know what is the problem that the PCs need to solve or what is the the bomb that's about to go off what is what is smoldering and burning so much that they can't ignore it and then once I've I've got that i can i can build everything around that conflict yeah but. i um i really like to draw inspiration from uh the books and the other stories that i consume um there's a lot of times where i'm like well that doesn't make sense and or well this is really cool i would do it this way or i need to learn more about this so that i can learn how to incorporate into that into the stories that i tell I was reading some books that used medieval banking as a major plot device, and it sounds kind of like, maybe that's a little boring or not at all interesting. You're wrong. Medieval banking is amazing. <laughs> but, um, but it gives you suddenly this whole new venue, and what's neat about it is if it's not something that you would expect to find in an adventure, your players get even more interested yeah. in it, right? Because not only is this something they don't understand and they haven't seen before, which makes it more interesting inherently, but then they start being like, I've got to understand this. I have to know how this is working and how this led to this because there's clearly a causation here and I just need to understand it. Yeah, I really like to pull um, ideas and threads out of uh, creature ecologies and the way that creatures exist in the world or what, what it is that they're able to do. We have a lot of creatures both in Pathfinder and Starfinder that have very specific special abilities that you can base entire adventures off of. Um, for example, the Vermlike Demon is something from uh, one of the old books of the damned that is a demon that basically wears a human as a skin suit and this is a worm-headed demon that is disgusting and covered in slime has a very guttural voice but has an ability that allows him to inhabit a dead body and basically impersonate that person and sow chaos throughout uh, throughout a, a community and I based um, a module called Gals of Madness on that entire concept that there was a Vermlac demon uh, who had uh, basically uh, gotten into an unfortunate unfortunate for them uh, encounter with like a merchant and had inhabited his body and uh, that there was all sorts of ways that he was kind of um, just sowing chaos and uh, like an actual like abyssal substance into this community that then uh, led to where this vermlac was layering in this old manor um, out in Serengallo and Isger. And so that entire idea and, you know, the outline for that entire adventure came from the fact that I just thought it was cool to have worm-headed 
creatures inhabiting the bodies of people as skin suits. So, you know, you can really get inspirations from anything that uh, just sort of triggers your imagination that uh, makes you ask questions about, well, what happens? What what does this mean? And how does this look like in the world and in play, um, you know, from a mechanic or from a story element? We try to do that in pretty much all of our books at Paizo, putting lots and lots of plot hooks to spark people's imaginations because that's really where the best campaigns come from. It's just inside your own head and what you think is interesting yep. and carrying that narrative forward. Yeah. All right, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm currently running a homebrew Pathfinder sandbox style game, but one of the problems I'm having with my players is, is they're, they're having a hard time latching onto a specific ideal that they want to follow as a storyline. Mm. Uh, when you're running a sandbox game, how do you keep, how do you, uh, uh, how do you make your players latch onto an ideal and follow it along to create their own storyline that they're interested in? I think you can't make your players necessarily latch on to anything. I think it really has to happen organically. And so when you've got sandbox adventures, you're talking about, you know, just lots of different encounters in different areas and they have to kind of follow a thread to to get through that. That's what you're saying for sandbox? Uh, I was mainly, like, I set out a lot of different things that they can interact with, but the problem mm. is my players are unmotivated. They're not, latching on, they're not latching on to any of the hooks that I'm giving them. Oh, sure, gotcha. yeah. So I think that's when you become a little more pro- proactive as a GM, and mm-hmm. you have that uh, that encounter, maybe, or that, that social encounter, or, you know, whoever it is that they're supposed to talk to over here, you have them go to the PCs and just contrive some kind of reason that they run into that character, or that that character specifically seeks them out, and the more that you can pull from the PCs these prior deeds uh, for a motivation for that to happen, I think the better because then they become interested of like, well, why is this noble prince coming to ask us about helping him find his lost signet ring? Uh, He heard about this thing that we did. We didn't realize that 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 was a story that got passed around town. And now all of a sudden they're very interested in this prince and who he is. And maybe they'll go find his ring or maybe they'll go search for kind of a little bit more about why he's been following them. And all of a sudden you're moving forward on an actual story. What do they have that's dear to them? Because, Put it in a blender. Because, where, <laughs> because where I where I immediately went is get them. Because <laughs> because in, in so I ran a, a DC Heroes campaign uh, when I was back in Nebraska that where we called it Gotham Knights End and it was sort of about what would happen after Batman died and they were they were the next group of heroes that like that, that took this on and one of them created a really interesting backstory and i was just struggling a little bit because it was sort of an older system and people didn't really know a lot of the rules and sometimes it would get a little heavy because it was an older rule set and stuff and sometimes they disengage but one of them created a character that she called Dragonfire, and she she shot fire out of her hands and flew around on you know uh flame and all sorts of cool stuff but she had uh a a um a nephew that she took care of, and that was her charge. And this nephew was not really an NPC that ever came into you know the game very much, but I knew that they were there. And once when the game got really, really sort of in a lull, that's when I had the KG Beast kidnap him. You're a monster. <laughs> and nothing perked him up faster than that ransom note, which I already had prepared in an envelope. I slid over, I took a little bit of red marker, you know, just kind of doused the thing in that, and slid it over, and that table started moving, and things started happening. And so just, I don't know if that will integrate into your sandbox, but I do think sometimes it is okay to just give them a problem. They have no idea how they're going to solve that, right? Like, there's, you haven't put them on a linear path. All you've said is, here's your problem, fix it. And, and that can be engaging, you know, even in a sandbox game. So. 
I would also say uh, if you're having trouble getting them to latch on to the NPCs, vary the ways you introduce the NPCs mm. or reintroduce the NPCs because the guy approaching you in the bar may not be super interesting, but if you see him the next day in the claws of a griffin trying to like fly off with him, he might suddenly get more interesting. Um, or, or if his pet is in the claws of the griffin. <laughs> can we stop murdering pets today? <laughs> Apparently we can't. <laughs> Clearly not. Um, but sometimes it's not the character itself that's not clicking. It's that the players aren't picking enough of what matters about the character up in the setting that you're giving them. And you might be hoping, like, come on, he's really interesting. Ask a question. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to start answering the questions for them. Like, why did that merchant need us? Well, because he's cursed and he's constantly attacked by griffins and he needs somebody to go deal with the witch who cursed him. Wh whatever the case may be, if you find some more ways to bring the hooks forward and to give the party some immediacy and some interest in the character, and, and if they don't like the character, don't shove it down their throats. Drop it, find yeah. something else that'll get them there. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Mm -hmm. I have another question from Twitch from uh, Big Bad Nick Wolf. Uh, they're interested in playing through published adventure paths, uh, and they want to continue those games between um, new publishings of next editions. Okay. Uh, but they want to make sure they don't out-level them with content um, with too much adventure. How would you manage that, doing like a home game in between volumes of an adventure path? So is the question that they're running an adventure path and then they're playing something that's not the adventure path in the interim? Right. I'm doing that right now. Yeah. So my my players asked me to go off book a little bit for Dead Sons just because they wanted to... Honestly, we didn't know we'd, when we'd be playing regularly and some things. And, um, and so I changed the way that the second book of the AP ends. Um, and because the the AP was sort of set to put them right into your 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 adventure, and I was like, okay, we'll give them a different ending. But I had a loose there's a loose end still hanging out there that they don't know is going to come back and put them back into the the AP. So sometimes it's just a little bit of planning. Now the, I will say that the level thing is tricky because I've thought about it, and I'm like, well, as they continue to adventure, that's going to be scaling off. Uh, of yeah. of dead sons, but you can manage that. You know, like you can look at the tables and kind of plan for how much extra XP you're going to give them. Um, and I personally believe that Starfinder is is one of the best systems uh, to GM for because if you want to move something up, you just look at the array tables um, and start to plug things in. And so, you know, making things uh, stepping things up isn't super hard, but um, but if you don't want to do that, uh, you know, maybe just talk to the players and be like, hey, maybe you won't advance, advance as fast, you know, now, because I, um, if you're okay with that, but maybe we'll do other rewards, you know, that, you know, other opportunities through exploring the galaxy um, so that I can keep parity for when we go back, you know, and if you just have a social agreement and the right players, I feel, okay, cool. We won't worry about as, as XP, we'll just have fun and do whatever we want for a while. And I think narratively a good way to to achieve that, which is a very good approach, is that you can sort of present it as uh, something that's happening in the off time or or is downtime or something that, you know, uh, they're doing on their own and tailor that to the characters in the group. You know, if you've got a character who, who is a musician and is in a band, well, maybe you start out this uh, this little, like, interim adventure on a gig that they're at and then all their friends who are in their party are also there to support them and then something happens and, and you know, then the adventure kind of plays out. 
Um, but like Leo said, you can manage exactly how that XP works based on what your needs are for the published adventure path, which is going to be a little more stringent in how much adventure or how much XP is is doled out, um, and just kind of focus on something that's cool and freeform and having a good time uh, in between the adventure paths. Another possible solution to that, and this may not work for every table, but this is actually what I do with my groups, is they have no idea how much XP they're earning. And that's because they're not. Yeah. I use milestones when yeah. I run an adventure path. The front of every adventure path, you open it up, you flip to like the second or third page, and it tells you, when this happens, the PCs should be this level. When this happens, the yeah. PCs should be this level. That's a good so I yeah. note those events down, and then that's when they level up, and it's they so don't <laughs> they don't track XP because they didn't really want to track XP anyways. Yeah, um, they go through, and so then if I need to stretch that out with little side stories, it's absolutely no different for them. If they earn no XP at all, they just get like some cool goodies. They make yeah. some cool friends, whatever the case may be. They they get stuff that feels rewarding. And they kind of had to be conditioned away from seeing XP as the reward first, right? Yes. Through the, the adventure having started with this milestone leveling. But then it, it really leads to it just being a very natural flow of the story. And if you're using that kind of model in this instance, then it will just kind of naturally sort itself out. And you won't have to worry about how badly you throw the adventure off by sifting in some, some side story goodies. Looks like we're getting close to time, but... Uh, did we want to do one more, or are we? Do you feel like you have time to finish one? Uh, sure. If we can make Probably it quick, why not? Yeah. yeah. And that'll be the last question. So, so my uh, players uh, ran into a problem uh, in a party conflict because uh, we're playing first edition, very loot-driven, so whenever I'd hand out loot, he was the one identifying it. But then he just kind of hold on to it and maybe give it out to somebody. Sure. So we had a couple sessions of this going on and it got bad. I finally had to put a foot down as a DM and say, uh, hey guys, we're all adults. We gotta actually you know, think like a party here and get people the stuff they need. But that also felt like a little organic and in, inorganic and heavy handed to me. Cause like it was kind of in his character to do that. Yeah. Um, Man, I'm laughing at it because I know what I would do. Yeah. So, so my question is, uh, what do you do in those situations and in similar <laughs> We had a character times. like that in a cyclopedic game that, that I played in, and the GM was brilliant because he was just accumulating and accumulating and accumulating stuff and not letting us have it. So then he gave him a cursed sword that turned him into a sword over, like, uh, two years and so like their hair started slowly falling out like they were getting met metal on their teeth um, but as this was going on they finally connected it to the sword mm -hmm. and that that player quickly made was like you know what you guys can have the loot now <laughs> like <laughs> i'm i'm being turned into some sort of metal abomination i'm not I, so anyway sometimes finding fun story ways to to motivate people but yeah uh and it helps a lot to define the social contract of the game up front, right? Because I find a lot of times in a game where people feel like there is some conflict happening or not everybody is on the page, um, it's not necessarily that anybody is intentionally trying to disrupt the game. There's just different expectations of how things should be working. So nailing those down ahead of time can be good. And then like Leo said, if the things that were nailed down ahead of time aren't sticking, that's when you can start using the story as a motivator to kind of put everybody back on yeah, track. Yeah. 
And I think within the world building of the game, it's interesting to sort of suggest to the players that there's always a push and a pull. You might yeah. have a character who is hoarding all of this stuff away and keeping everything from the other players while the players know what he's doing because obviously, you know, they know out of character, but the characters don't know. So it's creating this tension and it's frustrating like you had described. Well, if there's a character who's doing that and he's hoarding it all the way, where's he putting it? Is he got it in a yeah. trunk that's all locked away in his room in the inn? And in that case, is there like a cleaner or is there a thief <laughs> who's been watching him do all this that comes You're in evil. and steals his stuff? <laughs> exactly. That's what, that's what I'm learning from this panel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm like, define your social contracts. And they're like, murder their pets. <laughs> <laughs> or steal all their or stuff. Or steal their yeah. stuff. You know? Not Curse up. them. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, just uh, in-world sort of options to, to indicate, like, you know, that they have to have thought about what they're doing, the character has to, so, you know, if they're carrying a whole bunch of stuff on them, all of a sudden they're really, really heavy, and maybe they trip, and maybe they fall, and maybe it's water, and they start sinking, and so, you know, that there's consequences for the stuff yeah. that they're doing, and um, have them kind of think through whether that's what they really want to do, and are they prepared to accept those consequences. Well, we're we're pretty much out of time. Um, so I wanted to thank everyone for coming. I, I hope this was beneficial. Uh, a few of us will probably be around if you want to uh, ask any other questions that you didn't have time to ask. But yep. uh, we really appreciate you being here and uh, supporting Paizo and everything we do. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to NoDirectionPodcast.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you'd like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at Patreon.com slash NoDirection. Or click on the Patreon link at NoDirectionPodcast.com. <laughs>